Romans 7 verses 13 through 25 is our text for today. This is the 36th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. One of the things this missionary Paul wanted to do in writing to the church at Rome was to raise money so that he could go on a missionary journey to Spain. You see, God's heart is missions, and maybe he's calling you to be a missionary. Would you please pray about that? But even if he's not calling you to be a missionary, well, he is calling you to assist in sending others to spread the gospel around the world. Today's message is 44 handwritten pages, and the title of today's message is The Gospel According to Medea. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 7. As you do, please remember that the Lord loves you. Listen as I read to you Romans seven thirteen through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you by your Spirit would give us understanding in this passage. I thank you, dear God, that regardless of how well we understand it, we are all led to the conclusion that our <laughs> deliverance is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, in his name we pray, asking for a blessing upon this sermon. Amen. The passage at hand is the Word of God, and since it is the Word of God, it is therefore profitable. Um, the most important aspect of this sermon is over already, in that the passage has been read. So, with your mind fresh on what has just been read, I need to take you to the very end, to the bottom line, to the conclusion, the part which speaks of the gospel, and that is when Paul gets to verse 24, he calls himself a wretch, and then he asks who's going to bring him deliverance. Here is your bottom line. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The deliverance comes from the one who was delivered up for our offenses and raised for our justification. It's through this powerful gospel in which Christ died for his people and was raised again that we do have deliverance. Most important thing that I'm going to say this morning has now already been said. Now, what we're going to be looking at, even though it is going to stray considerably from that topic, uh, which is the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance, nonetheless, I think it is essential in building the argument. But even if you're not able to follow the argument, even if you're not interested in the argument, please remember, and we'll come back to this at the end, that Jesus Christ is the one that brings us deliverance. So you need help today? It's going to be found in Jesus Christ. It's the Word of God, and it is profitable. But yet at the same time, Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, 
is regarded by many to be the most feared and dreaded passage in all the Bible for preachers to explain. The reason that it is feared and dreaded is not because there is anything in it which is frightening or dreadful, but it is feared and it is dreaded because for the past 2,000 years, there has been no consensus, no noticeable majority opinion, no standard interpretation amongst the smart guys as to what it means. And specifically what I mean by that is who is talking here? Is it Paul as a saved man or is it Paul the author as an unsaved man? Now I realize that there are certain subcategories or nuances within that, but generally speaking, those are your two categories, either saved or lost. So for example, Origen, who lived from AD 185 to 253, taught that the passage is describing an unsaved man. Uh, St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, well, he thought the same thing when he was young, but later he changed his mind and finally concluded that Paul was describing the life of a Christian in Romans chapter 7. And over the centuries, the debate has continued. Who is Paul describing in these verses? Is he describing himself as an unconverted or a pre-converted Jew? Or is he describing himself as a saved man who is struggling with sin? You know, when I started preaching Romans 13 months ago, people who are familiar with this book immediately started asking me, what are you going to do with Romans chapter 7? Well, here we are today. In part, you're going to get your answer. So let me ask, are you familiar with this passage are you familiar with these arguments and this debate? And do you have an opinion? This morning, you will fit into one of four categories. Uh, category number one is that maybe you are immovably convinced that Paul is describing an unsaved person in these verses. And so in your mind, there is no way that a truly converted person could experience the struggles and the defeats described in these verses. That, that, that's, that's category number one. Number two is maybe you are radically committed to the interpretation that Paul is describing his own experience as a believer. Uh, he is a saved man. Uh, he's struggling. He is spiritually schizophrenic. He is inconsistent, but he is still saved. That's category number two. Uh, category number three is this. You have an open mind and you are still undecided. You have often wondered about the exact person that is speaking in this text and the meaning of this text. You really don't have a, a, a stance, but you're interested. You're uncommitted, but you're interested. And you are saying to me this morning, Pastor Ed, hit me with your best shot. Pat Benatar, 1980, fire away. And then there's a fourth category. And surely there is someone sitting here this morning saying, what are you even talking about? You've already lost me. I am both confused and disinterested. I don't see where this is making any difference whatsoever. Well, those are the four categories. You find yourself in at least one of them. Um, before I get to the text, and uh, I, I mean that broadly because I'm not going to get to the text for another 168 hours. I will get to it next week. But even today, before even looking at the passage, but let me do my best to be fair and to summarize the chief arguments from both sides, saved and unsaved. Is Paul saved or is he unsaved? And if you're going to do this, if you're going to follow these arguments, you're going to have to put on your thinking cap with a chin strap. Like you're going to have to put it on, you're going to have to leave it on for the entirety of the sermon. Here's the first option. That is, those who claim that Paul is describing an unsaved or unconverted or pre-converted man. I have eight arguments as to why many believe that Paul is describing an unsaved or pre-converted man in these verses. Argument number one is the summaries, plural, the summaries of chapter 7, verses 5 and 6 the structure which they insinuate, and whether or not that is something that we should follow. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I preached on chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Well, we have what many to believe a summary statement in chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, 
our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That is a description clearly of an unsaved person. And there are many who say that for the remainder of chapter 7, that is what is being described. So what you have in 7.5 is a truncated or a snapshot, a condensed version of the rest of chapter 7. And if that is true, then it would stand to reason that if 7.5 is the heading for the rest of chapter 7, and 7.5 is clearly talking about an unsaved person living in the flesh, and that person is unsaved, therefore, everything that is described in the rest of chapter 7 is also describing an unsaved person. By contrast, the very next verse, chapter 7, verse 6, if this is a heading, if this is a summary, if this is a snapshot or a microcosm of all of chapter 8, the following chapter, well, then what you can conclude about the person in chapter 8 is that they are saved. Notice what it says in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, and that word now is important, as we shall see in a few minutes, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If that is the summation of chapter 8, and verse 5 is the summation of chapter 7, therefore what is being said in chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, is arguably speaking and must be speaking about an unsaved lost person. That's argument number one. Argument number two as to why Paul is describing an unsaved person in Romans chapter 7 is based upon the logical link between verses 13 and 14. The progression of thinking, the logic, the argument that flows from verses 13 to verse 14. Notice what he says in verse 13 where he is clearly talking about someone that is unsaved. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Twice in this verse, he describes himself as being in a state of death. He is unsaved. That's not a stretch. That's true. Now notice what happens as he moves into verse 14. What does he say? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. It would seem very unnatural, and it would not be logical at all. It would be extremely disjointed for Paul to be speaking clearly as an unbeliever in verse 13. And then all of a sudden, as he moves into verse 14, poof, he all of a sudden becomes a saved man without any explanation whatsoever. And worse yet, in verse 14, he is describing himself is as of the flesh and sold under sin. So the structural, logical flow and the progression of 13 into 14 and their proximity one to the other leads one to say that Paul is not speaking about a saved man in 13 and neither does he speak about a saved man for the rest of the chapter. Argument number three is closely related and that is Paul's usage of the word flesh, sarx in Greek, the word flesh. Uh, the word flesh uh, seems to put the speaker in the category of the unsaved. But first of all, remember what we looked at just a moment ago, back in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, that is referring to an unsaved man. And then when you get to chapter 8, Paul is not speaking at all in any way autobiographically, but he's just making a definitive statement about the flesh. His definitive statement in chapter 8, verse 8, concerning the flesh is a very negative statement. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are unsaved. So if Paul has said in 7, 5, uh, something about the flesh, and that insinuates the person is saved, and definitively in chapter 8, verse 8, that someone is in the flesh is unsaved and they cannot please God, well, then it stands to reason if there are any usages of flesh in the middle there, which there are in chapter 7, verse 14, where Paul says, I am of the flesh, many think that that is just a smoking gun. 
And Paul is clearly saying he is unsaved by using the word or the terminology flesh. If, if that's the way he's describing himself, then he's just clearly saying that he is unsaved, that he's confessing that he is an unbeliever in these verses. Argument number four is an argument from silence. And it is the absence of the Holy Spirit in chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. You see, uh, you can speak about a believer, but it's hard to speak about a believer and not mention the Holy Spirit at all. And so maybe Paul is indicating that he is speaking as an unbeliever in chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, because there is nothing about the Holy Spirit. In fact, everything that we see in chapter 7 is Paul saying, I, 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 Ozzy Osbourne, crazy train, I, I, I. It just, he just keeps talking about himself with absolutely no mention of the Holy Spirit. Whereas when Paul gets to chapter 8, he brings up the Holy Spirit 19 times. And so how can he possibly be describing a born-again Christian in chapter 7 with exactly zero references to the Holy Spirit? Closely related, argument number five concerning why this would be an unsaved person is because there is such a contrast between chapters 7 and 8. It, it, it is, I mean, when you read chapter 7 and chapter 8, they are worlds apart. They are in different galaxies. It's hard to imagine that both of these chapters and both of these perspectives are coming from the same human being in the same condition, in the same category. Many will argue and they will say, well, chapter 7 uh, describes Paul as a pre-converted man without the Spirit. And then in chapter 8, it describes him as a Christian. And that is a really good argument. I, I mean, the contrast between 7 and 8 is so stark that you cannot do like a Jekyll and Hyde thing from 7 to 8 and just say, hey, it's one guy, he's the same guy, he's in the same category, but his, but his behavior is just different in one chapter than it is in another. That is very disjointed, and for that reason, people believe he's unsaved in 7 and that he's saved in 8. Which brings us to argument number 6 as to why many believe that this is referring to an unsaved person. And this is very closely related to the previous argument. And that is the presence of the little word now. N-O-W. Yes, now. Even now. Barry Manilow, 1978. The word now appears in chapter 8, verse 1. And it is significant. It is a hinge it is a turning point. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in 8.1. There is therefore now, N-O-W, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why in the world would you include the word now if everything remained the same? If you insert the word now, it indicates that a change has occurred. If I stood before you and I said, ladies and gentlemen, now I'm going to preach the book of Romans. Well, that's kind of ridiculous because I have been preaching it for 13 months. Why would you use the word now if you've been doing it all along? You see, that would be, I don't know, it, would just, it just would be meaningless. Uh, try it at lunch this afternoon. In the middle of lunch, after you've been eating for about 10 minutes, get the attention of everyone at the table and say this. Now I will be eating. Well, what have you been doing for the last 15 minutes? Eating. So why do you use the word now? I don't know, because the Apostle Paul does. Now I will be eating. It is both superfluous and redundant. You see, many will argue that Paul's intentionality in using the word now it is there so as to indicate that there is a shift and a change, and that shift and that change is from someone that is unsaved to someone that is saved. Which brings us to argument number seven as to why many of the smart guys believe that this passage is talking about an unconverted person, and that is the negative connotations of the word under. Under, yes, under. Living in the land down under. Men at Work, 1982. 
In verse 14, Paul says, I am sold under sin. That is a really strong and negative word. It's a heavy word, no pun intended. Why? Because this same author, Paul, in this same book, uses that same word back in chapter 3, verse 9, when he says that both Jews and Greeks are under, U-N-D-E-R, under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? Well, it means to be condemned or to be lost. Ten verses later in 3.19, Paul says, those under the law are held accountable to God. In other words, they are guilty or they are condemned by God. Then remember what Paul says in 6.14 when he brings that liberation and he says what? He says that you are not under law. And so his use of this word is a, is, a, is, a, is a heavy word, and it's a negative word, and it points in the direction of speaking of an unbeliever. Again, what it says in 7.14, Paul says concerning himself, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. It's really negative. And finally, the argument number eight concerning why this would be referring to an unbeliever is that many conclude that because if Paul is writing about a converted person, wow, there is such despair here. Many conclude that Paul is writing about a pre-converted person or an unsaved person because of the despair in the passage. In other words, If you read this and look at it and say, well, this is what a Christian is, well, it means that a Christian is not that much different than a non-Christian. The gospel has very little power and no practical value if one ends up saying, hey, you know what? I'd like to do the right thing, but I just can't do it. I don't have any self-control. Just keep doing the wrong thing over and over. Don't want to, but that's what I end up doing. You see, at the end of the day, My bottom line is that I am going to be in a state of perpetual disobedience. And so you have to ask the question, well, does the gospel then have any transforming power at all if nobody has any self-control? Furthermore, if you say that Romans chapter 8 is a Christian, well, then you could become very lazy and you could say, you know what? The apostle Paul fell into sin. I fall into sin. I don't want to. He didn't want to either. But that's the way it is, and that is what we do. So I don't want to sin, but if it's okay for Paul, it's okay for me. The person that is thinking along those lines is not actually a saved person. It is really dangerous to be thinking, yeah, that's the normal Christian life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, speaking of the new birth, says that if anybody is, is a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. Well, if I just keep living and falling into sin and saying I can do this because that's what the Apostle Paul did, well, then I'm living in a very dangerous place. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he describes a lot of sins and then he says, and such were, past tense, one of you. But you're not that way anymore. You see, the person in Romans 7 does not speak like a new creation. They do not speak like one whom, for whom the slavery to sin is broken. And so therefore, for those eight reasons, and there are probably many more reasons, but for those eight reasons, some really smart, studious, godly, highly educated people have concluded that there is scriptural evidence that Paul is describing an unconverted person in Romans Chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. But in a fallen world, not everyone thinks the same. And there are also some smart, educated, godly, thoughtful people who believe that Paul is describing a Christian in these verses and that this is a Christian experience. And so just for fun, let me give equal time to the Paul is saved theory, and let me tell you why those people believe that in these 13 verses, Paul is talking about a Christian. Eight more arguments. At this time, I feel like it would be a good rhetorical thing just to stop and tell a joke, but I'm not going to do that to give you relief. 
because I know it wouldn't give you any relief. It would just give you reason to scorn. So we're just going to press through with no jokes. See, even when I tell a joke about not telling a joke, it's same response. Same response. Argument number one as to why Paul perhaps is a saved man. And it has to do with verb tenses. Verb tenses. Past versus present. Now most people will agree that in the previous section, which we dealt with last week, Paul is describing his pre-conversion condition. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. In those verses... Um, he, he is describing himself before he was saved. I know that there are some debates. Some people think that that passage is describing Adam. Some people think it is describing the nation of Israel before the law was given. But most people, including me, believe that Paul is an unsaved man there. And in speaking of himself, he uses verbs. And those verbs are in the past tense. I died, verse 11. It killed me. In that section, there are nine past tense verbs like produced and deceived, etc., etc. Now that is Paul in an unsaved state. When you move into chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, something changes dramatically. And that is that all of a sudden, Paul begins to speak, but the verb tenses change and there are 26 verbs in 7, 13 through 25, and all of them describing Paul are in the present indicative first person. All of the verbs are present tense verbs. In other words, he was describing his past, and when he did, he used past tense verbs, but now he is describing what his present situation is. This is the way I am now I am Paul, and I am describing my current situation using present tense verbs. And if he were wanting us to know that what is being described in 13 through 25 is the way that he used to be, then what he should have done is stick with the past tense verbs. Let me illustrate it in this way. I want you to go back to your old boyfriend or your old girlfriend. And I'm I'm not talking about somebody that you just used to date. I'm talking about the person you had a nasty breakup with and things are not good now. And and you hope that you never see them again and they hope that they never see you. I want you to go up to them and I want you to say, I need you to know how much I love you. You still love me? No. No, I can't stand you. I, I, I love you. I honestly love you. Olivia Newton-John, 1974. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you love, like you do love me now? No, I don't. I love you. Wait, do you love me or not? I love you. What are you doing? Well, I'm telling you how I used to feel when we were together, but I'm using present tense verbs to do it. So I love you. But what you mean by that is that you loved me in the past. You used to love me, but you don't love me anymore. That's correct. I love you. That's nonsensical. Paul, here's what you need to do if you are describing the way that you used to be. You need to speak in past tense verbs. But Paul doesn't. He says, I do, present tense, I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 14. But what you mean by that, Paul, is that you used to do those things. Yes, that's right. That is really nonsensical. Paul, you would have been much clearer if you were talking about the past, if you had used the correct verb tense. And this is the reason why many smart guys think that Paul is describing his present situation as a saved man, because he's using present tense verbs, because that's the way that we talk. Argument number two as to why this would be describing a saved person is the final conclusion at the end of the chapter which allows for an inner conflict and tension within the heart of the Christian. I tried to find a more condensed way of saying that. Maybe it'll be clearer as I progress. This is a little bit harder to understand. This is one where the, the, the thinking cap needs to be on. You need to concentrate. Back in 724, down in 724, 
Paul is going to profess that he's a wretch, wretched man that I am. Then he's going to ask somewhat of a rhetorical question, but it's a cry of despair. And that is, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers the question by saying, I myself serve the law of, I'm sorry, he answers the question by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to deliver me? Answer is Jesus. Amen. So if he would have stopped right there, that would have proven that he was unsaved and that he just got saved here. Thanks be to God. Now just stop. Stop, Paul. <sighs> but there's a problem. Paul doesn't stop. He adds a conclusion or a tag onto his conversion or the deliverance which comes through Jesus, which seems to summarize his entire experience as a believer. So if you're trying to make the point that I was lost and now I'm saved, what you're going to do after you say Jesus saved me is you're just going to stop. You've been lost all this time, but now you've been delivered through salvation in Jesus. Just stop. But he doesn't stop. He adds something on to the end of verse 25. A little tag or an addendum. And that is verse 25. Look at it. So then, here's your summary statement or your bottom line. And the summary statement in the bottom line is not that Jesus saved me and enabled me to live in victory and constant obedience. No, the summary statement is, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Present tense. See argument number one. Why in the word would you add that after, A-F-T-E-R, after, after, your statement of praise to Jesus. It is so problematic logically for those that claim that Paul was an unsaved man that they either A, claim that that is an addition which was put on there by a scribe some years later, yet there is no record of any tampering with the text. There are no manuscripts which omit that, so indeed it is authentic. Or there will be others in desperation that will say, this can easily be solved simply by switching around the order of 25A and 25B so that we will end the argument, we will end the chapter, we will conclude the matter with praise to Jesus, not this tension or this struggle. And once again, you can't just take Scripture and like move it around to make it fit what you wanted to believe. Paul's ending argument is one of tension and struggle and inconsistency and spiritual schizophrenia. And that comes after, A-F-T-E-R, it comes after the deliverance of Jesus. And this means, leads many to believe, well, that struggle, which he adds on as the tag at the end, is a struggle which Christians, saved people, go through. Which brings us to argument number three concerning... Why many believe that Paul was saved, and it is that Paul speaks very positively about the law of God in this section. Notice all the good things that Paul says about the law. Verse 16, I agree with the law. Verse 18, I have a desire to do what is right. Verse 21, when I want to do right, implied in that is that he does want to do right. Verse 22, here's the key. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, not just with some sort of outward conformity like a whitewashed tomb, which Jesus described in Matthew 23, but inside are dead men's bones. But, but, but on the inside, there is this delight in the law of God. In my heart of hearts, the law of God is my delight. Verse 24, he feels convicted and he calls for help, calls himself a wretch and asks who will deliver him. And, and then at the end of verse 25, he said that I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Again, in the innermost being in his heart. Now that is a lot of positive ink to be giving over to an unsaved man. Surely he must be saved if he says that many good things about his feelings about the law of God. 
contrast those words and all of the words that I just gave you are, are sentiments and they are deep thoughts. They are personal. They are autobiographical. Contrast that with the objective statement, the, ob- the objective description of an unsaved person in chapter 8, verse 7. But Paul's not speaking either saved or unsaved in 8, 7. He's just making a definitive didactic statement. And what is that statement concerning one's belief or feeling toward the law? Well, it says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You cannot delight in the law of God and at the same time simultaneously be hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So some will argue and say, well, see, that's true. But Paul was a Pharisee and Paul was a religious Jew. And therefore, he would have loved God's law. And I will say, yes, he did love God's law. He loved what it could do for him outwardly in his exterior appearance to other people so that he would appear to be righteous. But concerning who he really was, What does Paul say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says, I am the chief of sinners. In other words, there has never been a worse sinner than me. And why would he be considered the worst sinner that ever lived? Because he hated Christ and he killed Christians. Now, now, if he was delighting in the law of God in his heart, he had a very funny way of showing it by being so merciless and killing Christians. It, 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 I, you, some will say, you cannot say that Paul was a non-Christian when he had so much love for the law of God. Which brings us to argument number four, why many believe that Paul is speaking here of a Christian. And that is the overarching context of the book of Romans. This text falls in a section which is talking about Christians. Get the big picture. Get in your helicopter, lift off, look at Romans as a whole. Chapters 1 through 4 is a description of the gospel. Chapters 5 through 8 describe the Christian life. Now it's true that there is a contrast between those in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and the difference is the, the, the power of the Spirit of God. But even though there is a contrast, we cannot separate Romans 7 from Romans 5, 6, and 8. And this is a huge section dealing with or describing the Christian life. And therefore, it leads many to say that Paul is describing his struggles as a Christian since this falls in a Christian section. Number five, and closely related, the argument concerning why many believe that Paul is a Christian here comes from chapter six. And in chapter six, Paul makes it clear that the Christian life is one where we need to be constantly growing and recommitting ourselves afresh. In other words, the argument is this. The Christian life is a life in progress, and no one has arrived at sanctification. There is no one-and-done sanctification. It is a battle, and it is a battle that lasts for the entirety of your life, and Paul is just describing the battle that is going on here. Notice what he says back in chapter 6 verses 12 and 13. Here's a command. Here's an imperative. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now he is speaking here to Christians. Nobody thinks that he is speaking in 6, 12, and 13 as, as an unchristian or non-Christian or two non-Christians. Clearly, he is speaking to Christians there, and he's saying there's going to be a battle, and you have to submit yourself to righteousness, to be a slave to righteousness. It is going to be a fight. And therefore, since Paul has already said in chapter 6, this is going to be tough, can we not in the next chapter believe him? when he describes just how tough it is? I mean, while we are in this unglorified state, it is going to be a challenge. The scripture tells us that it is going to be a challenge. Sin is bad and sin is worse than we think it is. Are we willing to believe it is that bad? 
as it is described in chapter 7. Argument number six, and again closely related, the argument concerning why some believe that Paul is describing a Christian here is simply due to the fact that we haven't gotten there yet. We are not in heaven yet. We are bound for the promised land. We're getting there, but we are not there yet. We are not yet in our glorified bodies. You see, on this side of heaven, on this side of being glorified, there is going to be a struggle. Paul even says in 725, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then over in chapter 8, verse 23, you remember chapter 8, it is the positive chapter. In chapter 8, he says what in 23? And not only the creation, but we ourselves, clearly talking about Christians, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even though you've got the Spirit, you groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons for the redemption of our bodies. In other words, until we get there, we are not yet there. And this struggle and this weakness of the man in chapter 7 should therefore not be a surprise. That there's going to be this tension in what theologians call the already but not yet. We have already been saved and forgiven, but we have not yet been glorified. And therefore, in the not yet arena, we who live in these bodies of death are going to struggle and sometimes fail, and we are going to slip and we're going to mess up. We're never going to ultimately fall away, but it is going to be a constant struggle simply because we're not in heaven yet. Which brings us to argument number seven, concern, concerning why many believe that the person described here is a Christian, and that is quite simply the cross-reference to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, which Sue read earlier in the service. Clearly, Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17 refers to a believer who is struggling with sin, and it fits very neatly as a cross-reference between itself and Romans chapter 7. Um, notice what he says in Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now implied in this is the possibility that one who is a believer would be tempted to gratify the flesh. That's you, that's me, that's true. How does this work? How, like, how, how, where does that come from? Well, in a truncated, much smaller version of Romans, Romans 7, Paul, the same author, in Galatians 6, says this in Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you, clearly referring to Christians, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So if it's the same author and the same sentiment, only it's shorter, um, you would have a lot of difficulty and inconsistency saying that Romans 7 is about an unbeliever and Galatians 5 is about a believer, when both texts are essentially saying the same thing. Which brings us to the final argument. The final argument, why many people believe Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 7 has to be talking about a Christian is because what is being described in that is quite simply a description of our own experience. When I read Romans chapter 7, you know what it is to me? It's an unfriendly mirror. Uh, I, you know, I never really studied the passage before. I mean, I did a little bit, but not much. And I always concluded that Paul was talking about himself as a child of God for one reason. Because as I read it, it seems to be describing me as a Christian. And so, well, let me just ask you, uh, but before you studied any of these arguments, you're just newly saved, you're picking up your Bible, you're reading Romans, you're reading through chapter 6, reading through chapter 7, when you read it, did you not see yourself in that? I think we do. And so therefore, if I conclude that Romans 7, 
13 through 25 is talking about a non-Christian. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be rhetorical in saying this. I'm, 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 I'm being very sincere when I say this. If this is describing a non-Christian, not only do I have to conclude that I myself am a non-Christian, but get this, I have to conclude I have never actually met a Christian. I don't know one personally. Every professing believer that I know can identify with the struggle Paul describes in Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. Do you not see yourself in this? I mean, I hope you don't, but everybody I know does. So I've given you eight arguments for why the description in Romans 7 is that of an unbeliever. I've given you eight arguments as to why this person in Romans 7 is a believer, is saved. Which one do you think is right? Well, I'm not going to ask you what you think. I'm going to poll you and ask you, what do you think I think? So you're going to have an opportunity to vote. You're going to vote by a show of hands. You're going to say, Pastor Ed thinks that this is describing an unbeliever. Pastor Ed thinks this is describing a believer. How many of you by show of hands would say, I think that Pastor Ed thinks that the person in Romans 7 is unconverted? How many of you would fall into that category? Both of you. Thank you. How many of you would say, no, Pastor Ed definitely thinks that this is a description of a believer. This is a saved man. Pastor Ed thinks it is a saved man. All right. All right. Before I give you my answer, um, let me ask you a few questions. Question number one is this. Does Paul anywhere in the text explicitly say, I am now speaking from the perspective of an unconverted person? Is that explicitly anywhere in the text? No. Here's another question. Does he anywhere in the text say, I am now describing myself in this passage as a born-again Christian currently in my current situation in an autobiographical way as a description of what I am as a saved man? Does he in explicit terms call himself one who is saved in this passage? No, he doesn't. So we're left to guess. Or are we? Is there anything in the passage which requires you to pick between the two? Or to ask it in another way, maybe this is a better question, what is the point of the passage? In order to find out the point of the passage, you have to go back to chapter 6, verse 14 where Paul makes this definitive statement, you are not under law, but under grace. And then he proceeds in the following verses to ask a series of questions which seem to be inflammatory toward the law or if answered in a positive way would say something bad about the law. Here are these questions. This is putting it into context. In 6.15, do, 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 do we do, is it okay to do bad then? Are we free to sin in light of the fact that we are not under law but under grace? And the answer is by no means. No, the answer is no. And, and then in chapter 7, verse 13, well, 7 7, is the law bad or is the law sin? And the answer is, by no means. And then in 7.13, did that which is good, this is referring to the law then, bring death to me? And the answer is, by no means. And so you have three different questions challenging the value and the morality and the usefulness of the law itself. And Paul doesn't throw the law under the bus. But I want to say, when we get to chapter 7, Paul's primary concern is answering these questions about the character of the law. It is not 
character or categorizing saved men or unsaved men with use of his description there. What he's doing in chapter 7 is not categorizing himself. He's answering questions about the law. And he's concluding that the law is not sufficient to help you. The law is the MRI. It can tell you that you have cancer. It cannot heal your cancer. And the law, when it is brought to people, does not help them. That is what is happening in chapter 7. That is his point. So we now must ask the question, who is the law insufficient to help? And the answer is Medea. Medea. Do you know who Medea is? In 2000, Tyler Perry created a character named Medea. Uh, her name is a contraction of the words Mother Dearest. Tyler Perry says he created her and she is a PG combination of his mother and his aunt, or as some people would say, aunt. Tyler Perry uh, himself plays the role of Medea in all 12 movies. However, the Apostle Paul uh, is speaking about another Medea in Romans 7, not Tyler Perry's Medea. Now, we're going to shift gears right now, and I'm going to give you some information which is potentially very boring. So, But it's important, so you need to stick with me. Here's the first thing that I need to tell you about this whole Medea theory. The style of writing or speaking that the Apostle Paul employs in Romans 7, 13 through 25 is known as a soliloquy. It is a dramatic dialogue when a character in a play will speak their thoughts out loud. Perhaps the most famous soliloquy is that of to be or not to be, that is the question. Now, we know that that's Hamlet. We know it comes from Shakespeare. But if I were to stand in the middle of a sermon and just all of a sudden to say, to be or not to be, that is the question. Would you think that I was speaking as myself or that I were conveying something which was original with me? No, you would immediately connect it to Shakespeare and with Hamlet. You would know that it was there for emphasis. It was it was uttered in a dramatic way. It 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 was not me making my point. Who am I? Two four six oh one. Pastor Ed, he's describing himself by giving us his zip code. No, no, no. If I say that, you who are familiar with Les Mis know that I am bringing. Jean Valjean into the sermon and I'm contemplating my identity. What is my identity? It is that of a prisoner. In the same way, Paul is speaking a soliloquy which would have been familiar to his audience in Romans chapter 7. And that is the reason for his repeated use of the I. Can you prove that? I think I can. But I need to insert one more piece of background information, and that is this. Most people in the ancient Near East were familiar with Greco-Roman plays, with literature, and with poems. I am not. But these people, his audience, they were. So, for example, when Paul is trying to evangelize on Mars Hill in Athens and he's speaking to the Greeks who have a lot of knowledge about the poets but no knowledge of the Old Testament at all, Paul in Acts 17.28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. That doesn't originate in the Old Testament. That is not something original with Paul. That is a quote from one of the poets. Which one? I'm not going to tell you because I'm intimidated to attempt to pronounce this person's name. But it's coming from one of those old Greek poets. And then he gives another one. As even some of your own poets have said, and what's the quote from the poet? For we are indeed his offspring. 
those people that were listening to him knew that he was quoting the poets. And I would argue that the people that read the book of Romans knew that Paul was in part quoting Medea. Who was Medea? Not Tyler Perry's Medea, but another Medea that came from the pen of Euripides. Euripides, who died about 400 years before this, had written a very famous play. In this play, one of the characters, Medea, loses her husband Jason to infidelity. He runs off with another woman. So what does Medea do? Well, she kills her two children that Jason was the father of, and then she kills the lover that has stolen her husband away. In Medea's soliloquy, this is what she says. I am being overcome by evils, and I know indeed that what I am about to do is evil. But passion is stronger than my reasoned reflection. Such is the cause of the worst evils to humans. You see, Medea sounds a lot like Paul, or is it the other way around? It's not Paul plagiarizing her, but it is that he knew that his audience was very familiar with Greco-Roman tragedies. And in that, there is this expression in the form of a soliloquy that goes out that says, I know that what I'm about to do is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. In another play, Euripides writes these words, and these are from the wife of the king, and she comments on her adultery. I believe the name of this particular play is uh, Hippolytus, and that is, I'm sure, the correct mispronunciation of that word. But nonetheless, here is what the daughter of the king, or the wife of the king says. Most people lack nothing by way of insight. We know and recognize the good, but we do not do it. Some from laziness and others preferring pleasure more than goodness. Now again, this sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, or does the Apostle Paul sound a lot like this? Paul would have been familiar with this play, and his audience would have been familiar with this play. There's one more that's even more striking. And this one was written by Ovid. He was a Roman poet that died in the year A.D. 17. And he puts a lament on the lips of one of his characters in the play Metamorphoses. And here's what the daughter of the king says. O wretched one, speaking of myself. O wretched man that I am. She writes, or says, from Ovid, If I could, I would be more reasonable. But some strange power holds me back against my will. Desire counsels me one way, reason another. I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse. End quote. Now that is a really strange coincidence that her words are so similar to those of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I think they sound familiar because Paul knows his audience is familiar with Greek and Roman literature. And he is speaking not as a saved man and not as an unsaved man, but he is speaking as an actor in, at would in a play, in a soliloquy, in his writing in Romans chapter 7. He's not trying to make the point. This is what I was like before I was saved, and this is what my struggle was. That is not his point. And he's not making the point, this is currently what I am like now that I am saved in my current struggle. Those categories are not in Paul's mind at all. That's not the question that he's answering at all. He's talking about the deficiency of the law or our ability to keep that law and how we all fall short. Now, definitely, his conclusions are going to be different than those of Ovid and Euripides, Medea and her friends. 
but he is using familiar lines from secular dramas and poems to accentuate the human condition. Paul is writing in story form about what it means to be a human being. That's what Romans 7 is about. Not a saved man, not an unsaved man, but a human being. And in his soliloquy, he isn't concerned about whether the person speaking is saved or lost. That is not his point at all. You know what it is? It is the ancient Near East equivalent of me slipping in song lyrics from the 1970s and 1980s. When I do it, I am not thinking, nor am I trying to communicate from the fictitious person in the song whether they are saved or not. That's irrelevant. Hit me with your best shot. Well, Pastor Ed, is the real tough cookie with the long history, are they saved or not? I don't know. That's not my point. The man from the land down under. What does he do? Well, he just smiles and gives me a Vegemite sandwich. Pastor Ed, did he do that because he's a Christian? Who cares? That's irrelevant. Now, the illustration breaks down because Paul quotes the classics, and he does so in a meaningful way, and his audience would have been familiar with those soliloquies, whereas I occasionally throw in obscure rock lyrics, which only a few old men in the congregation know, which nobody remembers, and they don't really add a lot of meaning to my sermons. So it's not apples to apples, but the point is neither Paul nor I expect our listeners to make a salvific evaluation of the things that we quote or allude to from secular society. What was Paul doing then? Well, here's what he was doing. In an artful, story-like soliloquy, he was imploring lines from plays that his audience were familiar with in order to drive home a point. And the point is this. Human beings left to themselves are bad, and the law doesn't help us, and we can't keep it. And that is true of unsaved people, and that is true of saved people. That is true of everyone. This is a description of everyone. It is me before I was saved. It is me now. It is you for the entirety of your whole life. This is the story of everyone. Paul wasn't confining his speech to one category of person. So, is the person in Romans 7 saved? Absolutely. And he's also not saved. Is it referring to a Christian or a non-Christian? Yes. It's a story, not an evaluation for the purpose of categorization. Flannery O'Connor put it this way, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. So what is Paul's story in Romans 7? Richard Longnecker puts it this way, human beings, all of us, Human beings, because of their inherited depravity and their own sins, have become spiritually and personally schizophrenic. That is, all people contain within their persons and express in their actions contradictory attitudes and qualities that apart from divine intervention keep them from doing good things that they know to be right and are always being driven to do those evil things that they know to be wrong, end quote. And I never read a quote twice, especially a long quote at the end of the sermon when the clock on the wall says that the sermon should be over already. But I have to read this one again. Pay attention to what Richard Longnecker says concerning all of us as it pertains to Romans 7. Human beings because of their inherited depravity and their own sins, have become spiritually and personally schizophrenic. That is, all people contain within their persons and express in their actions contradictory attitudes and qualities that apart from divine intervention keep them from doing good things that they know to be right and are always being driven to do those evil things that they know to be wrong. 
end quote again, and it sounds better the second time. In short, Romans 7 is describing all human beings. It's what Tom Schreiner calls the anthropological condition of human beings. Three observations. Observation number one, I will get back to the text next week. I prefer not to preach this way. Uh, I, I prefer just to look at the text and explain the text. Next week, we will be looking at the actual verses. Same passage again next week, but we will be in the text. And so thank you for bearing with me today. For those of you that are visitors, you'll never hear another sermon like this again. I never do this. I don't ever want to do this again. But for now, I needed to do it to set this passage up. But this was my least favorite sermon in the entire Roman series. But I think that it was a necessary sermon. Next week, back to the traditional verse-by-verse model. <coughs> Number two. Sometimes sincere, good, God-loving Christians will disagree with one another. Christians have been disagreeing on the meaning of Romans 7 for about 2,000 years. And as we hold to various positions, it's always good to have a dialogue, not a fight, but a dialogue, to hear why someone differs from you and to understand their rationale and hopefully today you know why some people hold to the fact that Romans 7 is speaking of an unbeliever and you know why some people think it's a believer and hopefully you know why I think it is referring to all human beings. But whatever you believe, know what you believe and believe it, but also graciously and charitably listen to those who differ. And finally, number three, we all find our solution in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, maybe the person in this passage is unsaved. If that's true, well, who's going to deliver them? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Maybe it's referring to a Christian. If that's true, where do they find their solution and their deliverance? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Maybe it's referring to everybody. Where do we find our solution? Where do you find your deliverance? It is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is of first importance. I didn't say enough about the gospel today. But you do need to know before you go home that God loves you. I hope you remembered that. And you are a sinner who needs help. Are you a lost sinner? You need help. Jesus gives it. Are you a saved sinner? Jesus Christ gives you help. Are you a human being who needs help? Jesus is your help. He died for our sins and he lives to restore us through his glorious resurrection. So no matter what, no matter what your category, Jesus and his gospel is your only hope. All right, last week at the end of the sermon, I said that we are 173 down and 260 to go. We have not moved an inch. But you know what? We're still getting there. We're still getting there. Father in heaven, thank you that these people paid attention for so long today. Lord, that's a kind grace from you. Lord, if I'm wrong about what I've presented today, I pray, Lord, that that would be clarified. But Father, whatever the case, we do know that our solution is deliverance from Jesus Christ. And may we look to him and him only. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.